Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 21. We're back in the book of Matthew. We took a couple months off there at the end of 2016, but uh, we'll, we'll be in Matthew from uh, today until uh, Easter, and uh, we're in chapter 21. So we, we didn't just randomly start in Matthew 21. We've covered the first 20 chapters, and uh, this morning's message from Pastor Anthony will be on verses 1 through 17. You should be able to find it in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have one or didn't bring one, and, and, and always feel free to take that with you uh, if you or someone you know needs it. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount, Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were all shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, asking, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. Happy New Year and good morning. It is 2017 and we are still together and that is a good thing. Uh, my name is Anthony Emerson. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Community Brookside. I'm glad to be with each of you this morning. And especially if this is your first time here, thank you for joining us on New Year's Day, no less. Um, thank you for joining us. We're glad you're here. Last year, as Paul was saying, uh, we spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life, and we did not finish it. We stopped about eight chapters short, and uh, one of our New Year's resolutions, you could say, as a church is to finish the Gospel of Matthew. So we are going to begin that journey today. Uh, the sermon series that we're beginning today is called The King's Last Week, last eight chapters of Matthew are basically all on this one week. That's because I would argue that this is the most important week in the history of the universe. The week of 9-11 does not compare. 
The week of July 4th, 1776 does not compare. This week with its historic influence and weightiness is unparalleled, which is why Matthew slows down, spends time on it, and why we want to study it together. So let's begin in prayer, and we'll jump into the kings last week. Lord, thank you for a new day and a new year, allowing us to be here this morning to hear from your word. We ask that you would illuminate this passage for us, that you would speak to us. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts, that we would abide in you and you would bear fruit in us even during this short period of time. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. What is 2017, and one of the things that will not change and maybe get even more important, is the importance of information, whether you have good information or bad information. We live in the information age. We have so much information to wade through. There are well over one billion websites that you can visit on your phone right now. There are hundreds of millions of blogs to read. There are however many 24-7 news channels now that you can watch. A lot of the information we receive is from good news sources. We live in a country with uh, some very good news sources, websites, channels, whatever it may be, newspapers. But there's some information that's, that's not as good. Uh, We've been hearing more and more, at least I have, about fake news recently and the damage that does, can do. Take a look at what Denzel Washington recently said about the prevalence of fake news and bad information. So when we think about fake news, we think about information, we think about political issues, public issues, but it is not only public issues around us that are affected by the quality of information available. Your emotional, relational, spiritual well-being is profoundly influenced by the information at your disposal, and whether it's good or bad. For example, my wife Melissa and I recently attended a wedding of one of her friends It's the biggest, most extravagant wedding I've ever been to. This family was well off, but also uh, this family was was of Indian heritage, both both the bride and the groom. And in Indian culture, as I understand it, uh, this couple was Hindu, uh, weddings aren't just a ceremony and a reception on one day and then everyone goes home. It's a week-long extravaganza. So we only got to go to three of the events, a Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday evening. In the first two events, I wore a suit, which was fine. A number of guys there were wearing suits, but most of the guys there were wearing traditional Indian garb, which is a long uh, garment, usually colorful. Um, And I thought these were really, really cool, but didn't have one myself. The Saturday, Saturday night event, though, the final event of the week, we discovered that Melissa's dad, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, had one of these garments. And we were staying with them, so I 
got to try it on, and it fit. So I went to the Saturday night reception with this red garment on uh, there. Melissa's wearing a sari. Um, And you better believe we were feeling good about ourselves. (laughs) But notice something important in this picture. Notice that neither of us are Indian. And I want you to notice that because we thought it was brilliant that I was wearing this outfit, but when we arrived at the reception with about 800 others, the vast majority of whom were Indian, I realized I started to look around that every single man there was wearing a black suit. I, this was like the stuff of nightmares for me. But we couldn't leave, I just had to go with it. I had bad information and paid for it. The Old Testament prophet Hosea says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Bad information. And then he says, a people without understanding comes to ruin. Philosopher Dallas Willard is responding to these Hosea texts when he states, this is the tragic condition of Western culture today, which has put away the information about God that God himself has made available. What we are talking about today, my friends, is the single most important piece of information in the world. Namely, the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what today's passage is primarily about. It's about how you and I answer this simple question. Who is this? Who exactly is he? It doesn't matter whether you are a longtime Christian or if you would say you are not a Christian. If you are a human being, How you answer that question, how you really answer that in your day-to-day life, what your information is on this is key to what your life will be like. What pops into our heads when we think about who Jesus is largely determines how life goes for us. So this morning, we'll explore this narrative in Matthew 21 and walk through it together, and then we'll discuss three aspects of Jesus' identity and how that affects us, what that means for us. So let's first dive into the story. In the first 20 chapters of Matthew, which we went through last year, Jesus has been traveling around the countryside. He's been healing the sick. He's been teaching crowds. He's been gathering followers. Now, he nears Jerusalem. He is finally arriving at the capital, the center of Israel. This is not just another story in Matthew. We are entering into the final and climactic events of Jesus' life. He is entering into the spotlight, the pressure cooker. We are going to see what he is really made of who he really is. The story begins with a couple of weird things happening. Jesus and his disciples arrive 
just outside of Jerusalem. And before entering the capital city, Jesus sends his two disciples to the next town over to get a donkey and a colt. And he says, they'll just be there. Someone asks you what you're doing stealing a donkey and a colt, he says, just tell them that the Lord needs them. It's odd. Look at how this happens in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If someone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Why does Jesus do this? Well, it isn't because he's getting a ride since he's tired. This is not about Jesus getting an Uber because it's convenient. He's been walking around the entire country for years, and they're just outside Jerusalem. He doesn't have far to go. No, he is taking these actions because he knows the Scriptures. He knows that there is an Old Testament prophecy that says that the true king of Israel will return to Jerusalem on a donkey and its colt. Read with me in verses 4 and 5. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So he is doing this intentionally to fulfill prophecy. He is consciously identifying himself as the one prophesied about. He is going to enter Jerusalem in a way that declares plain and straight, look, I am the guy that that Scripture spoke about. So the two disciples return with the donkey and the colt. Jesus hops on, and they start the short journey toward Jerusalem. And there's a crowd with them as well. We know from the previous passage in chapter 20 that this crowd has been traveling around with Jesus for a long time. They've been following Jesus and the disciples around for quite a while. And this crowd is not a group of the who's who. This crowd does not consist of Forbes' 100 richest people in Israel. This is a crowd of blind people whom Jesus has healed, of rejected people whom Jesus has accepted, of hungry peasants whom Jesus has fed. These are backwater folks from Galilee, most of them. These are Jesus' people. And as they see Jesus mount up and begin to move toward Jerusalem, they decide to form what was probably something like a long human tunnel. And they take off their cloaks and lay them down on the ground for the donkey to walk over. And they take off branches from nearby trees, put them down for Jesus to cross over. The modern equivalent of what is happening here is this. They are, in effect laying out the red carpet for Jesus. Not just because he's a celebrity either, 
You laid down cloaks, you laid down palm branches during this time for royalty, for the new king. And they start chanting praises to Jesus, calling him son of David. In other words, heir to the throne. They use words like Hosanna, which is a word used only in joyous praise. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a royal procession. And it causes a ruckus. Verse 10 says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? There's our question. Jesus is in the city. He has arrived in the capital and its inhabitants, seeing the parade go by their front doors, stick their heads out of their windows and shout over the noise of the chanting, what's all this about? Who is this? And the crowds give a partial answer in verse 11, saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And the Jerusalemites are probably thinking this is exciting. There is a prophet in Jerusalem. Some of them may leave their houses and join the throng, and there's momentum gathering and the crowd building. But then Jesus does something that is unacceptable. Instead of going before the authorities, the leaders of the people of Israel, and making nice with them, he issues a direct challenge to them. He goes straight to the temple, the center of Israel's religion and culture. He stops in the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, of the, the, the courtyard of the temple where non-Jews are supposed to worship. And he sees there's no room for anyone to worship because it's filled with money changers and people selling animals. It's filled with hustle and bustle instead of with peace, with buying and selling instead of with prayer. And amid all of the chanting and the parading and the curious onlookers, Jesus proceeds to storm around the entire courtyard, knocking over chairs, turning over tables, shouting at those who are buying and selling to leave the temple at once. Pigeons in their overturned cages are squawking, pigs are snorting, but the chanting has died down. Jesus, probably breathing heavily at this point, quotes two Old Testament prophecies to the stunned, now silent crowd. Verse 13, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Basically, this is supposed to be a place where all people, non-Jews included, can come and commune with God. But you have made it a place to make money. This is a space for worship, but you have turned it for profit. I will not have it. 
This is bold by Jesus. And despite all of this, though, even though this is what we often think about if we've heard this story as Jesus' scary moment where he gets angrier than he usually is, the blind and the lame and the children go directly up to him for healing and to offer more praise. The religious leaders, however, the ones he should have consulted with before doing anything drastic, respond by rebuking him, indignant and angry. And Jesus, who began this story, gearing up for his entry into Jerusalem, ends the story leaving Jerusalem the same day he arrived. No one in Jerusalem invites him over. No one wants him. Who is this? Who exactly is this? And and what does his identity mean for us? Briefly, with the time we have remaining, here's three aspects of Jesus' identity and how they affect us. First, he is king. He's the king, I tell you. We see this in his intentional fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, if you remember, about the true king of Israel. We see this in the people giving him a royal procession into the city. We see this in the authority that he acts with. It's not just your average Joe who upends the practices of the temple. He claims authority over the temple. This is my house, he says. He is king. King over Israel. But as you read through Scripture, you see that Jesus does not just claim kingship over Israel. He claims to be king over all people. This universal kingship of the true king of Israel was hinted at in the Old Testament, made clear in the New. The gospel itself ends with Jesus saying to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is king, period. So, obey confidently. Obey confidently. Like the disciples do in verse 6. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. Simple. Obey. But what a nasty word for most of us. But with a king, that is the response necessary. We have to get rid of this false notion, this bad information that Jesus is just this Sunday school, mild-mannered, vaguely profound, always available friend who we can ignore or take seriously at our own convenience. That is misinformation. The right information is that Jesus Christ as king lays absolute claim on planet earth. Everyone in this city, everyone in this room, everyone that you work with, everyone that you go to school with will bow their knee one way or another. He's the king, I tell you. So obey. 
but not blindly, not slavishly. Obey confidently. If you have direct access to the king and his instructions for how to live well in his realm, you follow those instructions. Jesus, as king of this universe, has the best information available on how to live the good life. Obedience to his instructions is sensible and it leads to flourishing. Obey him confidently. He knows what he's talking about. He is the king. At the same time, while it is true that he is king, we must also reckon with the information that he is lowly. What a contrast. He is lowly. Remember who he has been hanging out with the entire book and who escorts him into the city. Poor, backwater, lowly Galileans. Remember him entering Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of humility and lowliness and peace. Remember him driving out those making a profit in the temple to make room for non-Jews to worship, to make space for the outsider. Remember him healing the blind and the lame and receiving praise from children. Remember him leaving Jerusalem the same day that he entered it. Just as there was no room for Jesus in the inn as a baby, so there is no room for him as a man in the city. He is lowly all through his life. Jesus is king, he has all authority, all power, but he is lowly. He isn't spending all of his time with the leaders of Israel all day. Instead, he spends his time with his unknown ragtag group of followers. He expends the majority of his energy and life living among and ministering to the lowly, the lame, the blind, the excluded, the marginalized, the poor. Who are you living with? Who are you and I caring for? Where are we spending our time? The king is lowly, so the natural application for us is to live lowly, to imitate him, to live lowly. Theologian Sang-Hoon Lee puts it this way. All Christian churches that aspire to be the churches of Jesus Christ, the Galilean, must situate themselves at the periphery, not at the center of their society. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, two next step suggestions just to get us started here. One, to serve with one of our ministry partners or one of a number of organizations in the city. Volunteer your time. Spend some of your time with immigrant families in KCK with our partner Mission Adelante. Give a bit of your time to be with women in crisis pregnancy situations at Advice and Aid. You can get plugged in. You can check out our website, talk to a pastor, find a place to serve regularly and serve there. 
The other is to seek out relationships, friendships with the kinds of people that Jesus was in relationship with, the kinds of people He was friends with. If you begin serving with a ministry partner or other volunteer opportunity and just commit to listening to and learning from the people you're around, this will begin to happen. You won't just be ministering to, but growing in relationship with. And when we do that, we begin to be shaped differently. We begin to live lowly, and we come to know Christ more intimately, more deeply, for He is lowly. So He is King. At the same time, He is lowly. And lastly, He is Savior. The final aspect of Jesus' identity today is that He is Savior. Because you and I don't just need a king. We do not just need someone with power and authority. Adolf Hitler had power and authority. It's not necessarily going to do us any good on its own, but we also don't just need someone who is lowly. We need more than a humble, lowly, compassionate Jesus who's well-intentioned but has no power to carry through with it. We need someone who is both of these things, who is a combination of kingliness and lowliness, who is powerful enough to take care of us and lowly enough to do the dirty work of actually caring for us. Someone like that can be a savior. And as we've seen, this is who Jesus is. He is king, he is lowly, and therefore, he is savior. This is why the crowds are ecstatic as Jesus enters Jerusalem. They are looking to him as their savior. They are trusting him, their powerful yet lowly king, as their savior. And so it is no surprise that a handful of days after this fateful entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' kingliness and lowliness meet again in the same place where we see most visibly that He is Savior. That place is the cross. There on the cross, we witness the marriage of Jesus' kingliness and lowliness most clearly. And there on the cross, Jesus is most climactically revealed as Savior. On the cross, Jesus is lowly. He lays his life down. He endures pain and suffering. He lowers himself to dying slowly, a falsely accused criminal, ashamed, mocked, spit upon. He is lowly. But also on the cross, Jesus is king. On the cross, Jesus vanquishes the power of sin. On the cross, He takes upon Himself the sins of the world, absorbs them, and brings them down to the grave with Him. He literally buries sin and death on our behalf. He triumphs over them. He is King. And it is in the very combination of His lowliness and His kingliness that Jesus is Savior. 
Savior from sin and death. And three days later, this Savior is raised to life, and He lives even now in 2017, ruling with the scars still in His hands. He is still king. He is still lowly. He is still Savior. So, trust fully. Trust fully in Him as Savior, as the one who can forgive you, as the one who can deliver you from sin, as the one who can bring you to the life you have been designed to live, to life with God. Don't trust in yourself for that. Don't trust in anyone else for that. Trust in Him. He is Savior. So trust fully. In 2013, a woman entered a high-end store in Zurich, Switzerland. She had traveled to Europe for a, uh, the wedding of a friend and thought she'd do a little shopping while she was there. She was perusing the handbags when she saw one that caught her eye, a small crocodile skin bag that was behind the counter. And so she asked the store attendant to see it. And the store attendant said, no, no, you you don't want to see that bag. You want to see this one. That bag over there is is too expensive. Costs too much money. And the woman said, please, I'd really would like to see the bag. The store attendant replied again, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I just don't think you'll be able to afford that. It's way too much. So the woman left the store. The next day, the incident became international news because the woman visiting Zurich was Oprah Winfrey. And the wedding she was there to attend was Tina Turner's. And the purse that she wanted to buy was $38,000, which is a lot of money, but a billionaire can probably afford it. And in the same way that that store attendant missed an opportunity to close a sale because he missed the identity of his client, so you and I will miss our opportunity for true life if we miss the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. So today, How do you answer that question? Who is this? In your day-to-day life, how do you really answer that question? What you believe the answer to be and how you respond to it more than anything else determines the course and the quality of your life. Don't be fooled by bad information on who this Jesus is. Believe the good news. He is king, he is lowly, and he is savior. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize you as king and ask that you would empower us to obey you confidently. We see that you are lowly, And pray that you would help us to imitate you in lowliness. And we trust in you as Savior. Thank you for revealing yourself to us this morning. We ask that you would continue to do so even during this 
time of the communion meal. We ask, Lord, that you would get all the glory. All praise goes to you. In your name we pray. Amen.